0: Hi
1: folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 21st, 2019, and it is a Tuesday, time for a Just Jack show. We're up to episode 2443 of the Survival Podcast today, and we're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about how to win with money so that you can win with life, uh, taking a little cue there from Dave Ramsey. I've realized like this is one of those fundamental things that we built the entire thing on. The entire Survival Podcast community and sub-communities have been built largely on financial management, financial strategies, debt elimination, and overall, developing a resilient lifestyle, understanding one component of that, one component of that, but a very component, very important component is economics, and specifically personal and home economics. We haven't really dug deep into it for a while. We talk about it as a thing all the time, but really digging into it, something we haven't done for a while, so we're going to do that today. I'm going to tell you the three biggest wealth killers for most people, and they're probably not what you would think they are. I'm going to talk about debt being cancer, which is something that was also fundamental, but I'm going to give it to you in a way that maybe you'll think about it a little bit differently today. I'm going to tell you why savings is probably more important than investing for most people, at least initially. And we're going to even look at alternative energy not as a thing to do, but as a thing that will teach us. we talk about pattern recognition here, and one of the easiest patterns you'll ever see. Once you see it, you won't be able to unsee it. Is how when we look at energy, and I'm talking about you know, electricity for your house, it runs your lights and your heat and your AC and all. That we can directly see exactly how to manage our financial lives just from how to deal with energy in our homes. And we're going to go through my rules on becoming financially resilient today. And I think you know, I think it's a good day to do this. I look at this show and shows like it as you know those fundamentals that no one ever really wants to do but you always benefit from it you know if you think back to playing you know football or any sport that you might have played in school or if you were involved in some sort of dance or cheerleading or something anything like that anything that involves a specific thing that especially if it's a team sport or team activity You get good at it, and you start expanding beyond the basics, and you start going into advanced things and stuff like that. But when things aren't quite going right, good teachers, good coaches, and I guess this really applies to academics as well, you take your students back to the fundamentals, and you work on those fundamentals, and then everything gets better. That's kind of what today's show is going to be, and every once in a while I'll try to throw a fundamentals show in for you. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is Ridge Wallet. Ridge Wallet is one of those things that seems like a simple little thing, but if you embrace it and you bring it into your life, it changes your life just a little bit for the better. Um... I spent years of my life walking around with a billfold like most guys have on my butt. It's uncomfortable when you sit. It's bad for your posture. And frankly, I was carrying a bunch of crap that I didn't really need that i convinced myself that I did. When I went minimalist with the Ridge Wallet, I did it because they wanted to be a sponsor. And I didn't know if I was going to take them because I I just can't endorse something unless I would use it personally. I just can't do it. So they sent me a couple of them, and I set one up, and I started carrying it, and I never looked back. It took me about three months to stop playing the grab-ass game every time I got out of the car and feeling my butt and wondering where my wallet was and going, oh, yeah, it's this little thing here. But now I have a minimalist approach. I always have everything I need. I've never once felt like, gee, I wish I had my own wallet back. And on top of it all, I have protection from identity theft because of the way they're designed. You know, somebody can't just walk past you with an $8 part from eBay and get your personal information off the RFID cards. Check them out today, RidgeWallet.com. Remember, MSB members, you get 10% off everything they sell, including the phone cases, backup power systems, day packs, etc., and, of course, the original wallet. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. This was a company, when they came and said, will you sponsor us? I didn't have to think about it, because I'd already been a customer of theirs for almost 20 years. In fact, over 20 years by then. I first discovered Backwoods Home Magazine in 1993 when I was a young man just out of the Army. And uh, didn't have a lot of money and didn't know what I was going to do with my life yet. And there was a local uh, mall real close to where I was living with a friend. And uh, I'd walk down there and get a cup of coffee, walk around, try to figure out what to do with myself. And there was a huge Barnes & Nobles in there. And they were in Barnes & Nobles at the time. And I picked that magazine up and thought, oh, my God, this is everything I grew up with and more. And by the time I got my life together enough to have an actual job, I became a subscriber. I've been a subscriber ever since. So we're going back to 1993 We're in 2019. That's 26 years. In those 26 years, the only time that Backwoods Home Magazine wasn't showing up at my house was when they stopped production for a while. I was very happy when they came back. I'm glad they're back as a sponsor. Backwoods Home Magazine. Check them out, folks. They are the go-to source for information on self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty on your homestead. With that, before we get into today's topic, it's Tuesday, so we're starting to do history segments again, but just once a week. So what happened this week? It actually did happen today, but I'm just pulling something from the week. On this day in 1927, Charles Lindbergh landed the Spirit of St. Louis in Paris, France, completing the first transatlantic flight for modern man. And I think this is one of those things that was so big at the time, but today we just people know it. you learned it in history people don't have a, have a hard time understanding why it was such a big deal. Let me tell you a little bit about this flight. so he gets up there and he's flying, he starts getting tired. he flies about ten feet off the water to wake himself up. I guess fear of crashing into the water will wake your ass up eventually he's so asleep and so sleepy. That he's holding, he literally holding his eyes open with his fingers. He starts hallucinating. He thinks ghosts are moving through the cockpit of this little last plane. Finally, kind of has that second wind kick in, and ends up about eight o'clock in the evening on the twenty seventh, landing in. Uh, I'm sorry, the twenty first landing in Paris, France in 1927 on this day. <sighs> most people, I think the average person, when they heard he was going to do this, had kind of that fatalistic, voyeur type. They expected him to die. No one expected him to do this. Uh, Nothing quite like it had ever really been attempted before. And something happened on that day. The impossible became possible because somebody did it. And there's a big lesson in that in a lot of what we're going to talk about today. That's why I selected it. But... This is what makes a hero a hero. They do something, and I, and I don't mean it makes them actually a hero, okay? I don't mean, like, to me a hero is somebody that risks their life to save somebody else's life. That is heroic. But but we create heroes for ourselves, and I think it's largely individual. There are people that may be heroes in your life that no one else knows, and that that's fine. I'm talking about when society may elevates a person in general, to the status of a hero. It's generally a person that breaks a barrier and does something that people didn't believe was possible. And the reason they become that kind of celebrity hero that I'm talking about is because once they do it, we know that it is possible. And everything will change in regard to that thing after that time. And that indeed is what happened. We went from the concept that the only way to get from North America to Europe was a boat to the fact that it could be done in a fraction of a time with a plane. The planes of the time were not ready for it yet. and It was a long time before they were. But at that moment, that thing went away, and it became a new path forward. When the four-minute mile was broken, it was amazing how many people did it as soon as somebody did it first. And there's so much in that. So what I want... Kind of use that to set the stage with for today's show is when you're and I remember being young and broke, guys. Okay, it's I'm old, but I'm not that old yet. Um, I remember being young and broke. I remember a time when a lot of what I'm going to tell you today, I would have like, ah, what? Well, that's easy for you to say. The truth is, there's so many people that have taken this path forward and done it. That no one's a hero for it, and we don't need a hero to prove to us that it's possible. No matter where you are on your path, you can have this path in your life. We don't need trailblazers because there's literally millions of people who have built the life they're looking for using this very thing, and it's not new. There's new technologies. There's new things available to us that weren't always available. But throughout history, if you look at people that were not rich but rather wealthy, and we're going to talk about that distinction today, The pattern of behavior is the same. And you can, if you want to know more about that side of it, because we're really not going to talk about that much today, other than for the intro, uh, I highly recommend The Richest Man in Babylon. Uh, You can get a copy of the book. I'll put a link in the show notes where you can do that on Amazon. I'll put a link to where you can listen to the entire thing for free on YouTube where somebody read the whole thing, the audio versions there. I I cannot recommend that highly enough. So I mentioned Dave Ramsey, and I've talked about this before. I think Dave Ramsey's investing advice is poor, but his his financial management and debt elimination advice is probably the best that anybody in modern time has ever actually put out there and got people to listen to anyway. Um, And one of the things I really like about his philosophy with money is that he says that money... Is about 10% what you do and 90% how you think. And that, that can seem like it's not true, but it absolutely is true because it is how you think that dictate how you behave. And, and it's easy to understand. Sometimes people really struggle with that, but it's so easy to understand. What I want you to do right now, wherever you are, as long as you can do it without breaking something, just just lift your right hand a couple inches in the air. Now put it back where it was. Okay, that action came from where? Did your hand decide to make that movement? Did your body decide to make that movement? No. What caused that to happen? Your mind. You decided to do what I asked you to do and and lift your hand. Without the mind, the hand would not respond. It's just a robot at that point, right? So every action you take has its genesis in what you think and how you control your mind. So with that in mind, I'm going to tell you that the three biggest killers of wealth in the world today, and probably for all time, have to do with how you think. The first one, and the one that people always miss, because it doesn't sound like something that would destroy wealth, is until you actually give it the right name, poverty consciousness. Poverty consciousness is when everything you do, you try to do the cheapest way possible. Poverty consciousness is when you think of yourself as I'm the poor and they are the rich. Poverty consciousness is what enables class warfare to be so damn effective in the world today. Poverty consciousness is the concept that there is an us and them when it comes to money and not from a standpoint of financial elites or anything like that. That Literally, the the guy down the street who went to the same school you did, grew up in the same town you did, that's doing better than you, is because he's him instead of because of what he's done. That there's some sort of divide between you and that other person. Something wasn't fair. He was lucky. Whatever it is, it's all bullshit. Right? It's all bullshit. If the person that you went to school with that got basically the same grades you did or maybe worse... That's about the same age as you, the same sex as you, the same color as you, etc. Grew up with parents very similar to your own, can do better than you, then you can do better than you're doing. Poverty consciousness is massive where I grew up. And I never knew it until I went back there after I got out of there for about a decade. I went home because I took a job in Pennsylvania, moved my family to Pennsylvania for a few years to work for a company called Fluke Networks. And when I, you know, I ended up living near Allentown in just a beautiful little place called Northampton. But as I was looking for a home and my wife was still here in Texas, my son was finishing up that year of school, and I traveled around up there, I stayed with my father. And I remember I walked into uh, a Dunkin' Donuts that was on the corner of this road that was where, like, everybody hung out. And I don't mean kids. I mean, like, old people and young people and all mixed. It's just a place where people would meet for a coffee and a donut because it's cheap, right? I sat there, and I was I was actually using a laptop and doing some work and just figured I would get out of my, my dad's place for a while and give him some time to himself because he's so used to living alone. They just seemed like a place to to go do that. And I must have heard the word cheap or cheaper a hundred times from the people around me without trying to listen for it. And I realized at that point how important it was for me to have gotten out of there because it would have been very hard, absent some third party telling me what I'm telling you right now, for me to break that cycle. And I realized that the majority of the people that lived in that area would always do poorly financially and always be dependent on something else outside of themselves because of nothing else but the way that they thought. So the number one wealth killer is poverty consciousness, and you have to abandon that. The next wealth killer is consumer age thinking. The belief that whatever I want, I should be able to have it now. Living on credit cards... But it's not just living on credit cards. Even people that don't live on credit cards, even people that maybe don't even have a credit card, don't use a credit card, end up broke from this type of thinking because they spend everything that they earn because, well, I want this, and I want that, and I want this in my life. We've, we've moved into an age of society where the number one thing that companies do is marketing. And that's not bad if you're in business, because that's how you earn business but most companies that are even companies that make a thing put more effort into marketing the thing than making the thing really really good and we've got into a place now where more true than i believe any time in history people judge themselves on what they have compared to the person next to them and at the same time they've married this abundance thinking of i want everything and i want it now with a poverty consciousness if I don't have enough because somebody else has more. And the third wealth killer that pairs right in with these other two is false optimism or pessimism, or both. False pessimism works like this. Well, you're no one unless you owe somebody money in America today anyway. False optimism is... Well, I'll pay for this when I get a better job. I'll pay for this when times pick up. I'll, that whole mon- mantra of, it does not it's, it's like a financial fatalism married to an optimism of, well, someday it will be better and I'll worry about it then. Which gives me the excuse to not take action today. Because what did I say when we started this section? How you think dictates how you act. What you do is 90% thinking and 10% action. Because it is the thought that compels or restricts the action. And that brings us to what it all leads to. Debt. And debt is cancer. It's not like cancer, it's cancer. Debt is financial cancer. Now whenever I say this, I'll usually get... A couple different things, but one will be the articulate, well-thought-out business person that uses a line of credit to run their business and leverages that debt to make more money. I'm not talking about you. You can just stop writing your angry email right now. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the person sitting their ass on a couch, bitching about life, and that couch is still not paid for even though they got it four years ago on a credit card or a no-interest sale that they're now paying interest on at a furniture store because they no interest and no payments was for 12 months where they didn't make any payments and now they're paying the interest and they still haven't paid for their couch, which is about worn out that they need to get rid of to go to an extreme version thereof. I'm talking about the person that's sitting on $40,000 worth of student loan debt. And guess what? Their degree is not a marketable degree. Even if their degree can help them get a job, it can't get them any better job as far as economic e- evaluation than they could have gotten without the degree. You know, If, if, if your degree qualifies you for a $40,000 job, trust me, you could have got a $40,000 job without that degree. I promise you, this day and age, if you work your ass off, you can go out and you can find a way to make that kind of money. And that's not a lot. That's a pretty base level. And a lot of people are coming out of college with degrees and they're starting out making you know, $25,000, $30,000 a year. Now, if that leads to somewhere, if that's a, if that's just what an entry-level position is with the top of that career field, you know, it's making a couple hundred grand a year, and that's just paying your dues, that's a different story. But there's a lot of people. There is no path forward. There isn't. So any form of debt that cannot be leveraged to make more than you took out against it, it's got to go. To me, a mortgage on a home, especially when you buy right, that makes sense. You're buying an appreciating asset with credit. When you buy a depreciating uh, uh, asset with credit, that's a problem. Because you're paying more than the thing's worth knowing that it will depreciate or go down in value. There's, that's not a smart decision. That's not a smart decision. And the thing about debt is for a time it can make one person look healthier than another. So we got Mike. Mike has an ass load of student loan debt. He's in his mid to late 20s. He's finally got a halfway decent job. He could be paying off his loans. Instead, he makes his minimum student loan payments. He goes out and buys an expensive car. He gets a raise. He goes and buys a bigger house. Now he's married. He's got two kids. The kids are all the activities. Mom's driving an SUV to cart the kids around, even though the kids are still like four years old. He's in a country club, whatever. And, and you got another guy across the street from him driving a car that's five or six years old. And he's paid off his student loan debts long ago. He's got the smaller house. And you look at these two people, and the guy living on the debt looks healthier. But by the time they're in their early 40s, one sitting down with his wife with her hands in the face, having a come to Jesus' meeting, and either trying to figure out how to get out of this hole or discussing dissolving their marriage because the stress of the debt has been one of the factors that have ripped the marriage apart. And the guy across the street's done sold his house, moved down the road, has a bigger house, and he's got it damn near paid for, and he's living a great life because he was willing to lay gratification and do the hard work to get where he wanted to go. And that's what debt does. It destroys you from the inside. It metastasizes through your entire life. And that's why it has to go. And that's why I'm not... I am not lenient on this one. A lot of things I say, you know, you should do this, but you can do something. No. If you live a life based on debt, you will destroy your life. And whatever you could have had, you won't. And this is where I want to talk a little bit about the picture for today's show. There's a guy that wrote a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad that I love and I hate. Because I think on some levels he's kind of a a sharp-suited snake oil salesman. And on the other hand, he's really, really astute with some of the ways he puts things. That's Robert Kiyosaki. And uh, one of my favorite lines from Rich Dad Poor Dad, his original book, which is to me still his best, is, Rich is measured in money and wealth is measured in time. Most people focus on rich rather than becoming wealthy. So again, rich is measured in money and wealth is measured in time. Most people focus on getting rich rather than becoming wealthy. Now, I agree with that, or I wouldn't have said it, but I want to talk about how it applies to debt because people don't generally understand debt is about time. It's not just about money. We really measure debt in the amount of time it takes us to get rid of it because we can take that debt on and get that shiny thing. And long after the shine has come away from that thing and we can't even get rid of it anymore, we've got to pay someone to dispose of it for us. We can still have the debt. How long do you have to work to have that shiny thing temporarily in your life? That's why it's cancer. Cancer kills people and takes time from them. Time that could have been spent living with the people they love and doing things, they don't get to do it. And even when people beat cancer, it takes time from them. You know, they might spend months going through painful therapies and it's certainly worth it, but that time is lost when it could have been spent doing things they would have definitely prepared to do. And that's also why debt is cancer, because it's like chemotherapy getting rid of debt. And the more you got, the worse your cancer, the stronger the chemo is going to be. So you, you've got to do this, because you do measure it in time. And what is the value of your time? Making the most of your dash is difficult to do when you're in prison. It can be done, but it's not easy. Well, there are more than one sort of prison. And debt is a form of prison. It is a form of change that holds you back in your life. So you must eliminate your debt. Um, there's no special way to do that. There really isn't. There's no, there's no secret programs that credit card companies don't want you to know about. Every time I hear that on a radio, I want to get a hold of the person who wrote that script and slap the living shit out of them. Seriously. Because that doesn't exist. The companies that do that, they are the credit card companies. They are the same debtors, okay? It's just debt sales is all it is. The only way to pay off your debt is to pay off your debt. And Dave Ramsey's methodology called debt snowballing is the best way. And you take your smallest debt, and you get every extra penny you can come up with, and you pay that debt off first. And then whatever you were paying on that debt for the base plus the extra, you take your next debt in size, and just move it over there and pay on that one. And when that one's gone, you take all of it and go to the next one until there's none left. And people get confused with that. Well, I have a higher interest. It doesn't matter. When you get rid of that little debt and all of that payment gets put onto the next debt, you start to increase your power. And what generally happens for people that have a lot of debts, four or five credit cards, student loan, etc., that the last debt they pay they pay off faster than they paid off the first three because it accelerates the snowballs, just like Dave says it does. So I endorse Dave Ramsey's approach to that, and I'll leave it at that today. So let's talk about pattern recognition here because I believe the more you practice pattern recognition, the more you see it, the more powerful you become mentally, and the more powerful you become mentally, the more powerful you become in action. Because, again, just to raise your hand requires your thought. If we sever the connection between your mind and your hand, your hand just sits there. Everything is driven by the way you think. So pattern recognition is incredibly important, and it's what lets you detect bullshit. is one of the biggest things that it does. You read a, a, a headline in an article today and go, that's huh, bullshit." You don't have to read the article; huh, that's bullshit. You tell by the way it's formatted. It's always bullshit when it's formatted, that, it's formatted that way. So here is a way that we can understand how we become more financially independent by looking at what we do to become more energy independent in our home. There's just two things that we do when it comes to energy, especially alternative energy. We increase efficiency, and that might mean something like, let's have a solar panel up on the roof that makes energy for us. right? Or, you know, let's let's go out and buy a new... AC system that's far more efficient, right? And then the other thing we do is we reduce our losses. So if you're if you're spending money on a better air conditioning system, or you're trying to put solar in, or a, your own windmill, or anything like that, and you have a gap around your door that all of the colder heat just flows out, well, it doesn't work real well. So you have to you have to shore up the loss. And increase the efficiency. How does that work with financial management? Increasing efficiency is your income. So do you have two things you can do to become more financially independent. One is to have more money coming in, and the, and the reduction of loss is your spending to cut the money going out. There's there's nothing more to it than that. But we can look at how we improve the energy efficiency of a home, and we see exactly how to improve the financial efficiency of our lives. Increase your efficiency by making more money and reduce your losses by cutting your spending. And I'd love to tell you there's some magical genie lamp you can rub or something, and it'll make money come out. It doesn't work that way. You you can talk about the law of attraction all you want. I'll, I'll give you the law of attraction. The law of attraction is a real thing, or you wouldn't be able to sell it as snake oil. If there was no truth to it, you couldn't sell it. The law of attraction is simply that again, since the mind controls your actions, when you're thinking abundantly in a proper way, you'll see the opportunity that would have been there anyway and you'll capitalize on it. All right? I mean, the belief that you are going to be driving through a very busy parking lot and attract somebody leaving so you get a good parking spot is insane. But the concept that if you're thinking that way, You might notice as you go down this lane that that lady just got in her car where otherwise you wouldn't have come back around to get the better parking place is valid. Now, personally, I think you should park as far out as possible and walk your ass back and forth because it's good for you. But you see what I'm saying there. That's the law of attraction. And that's it. So there isn't some way that you can just think about and manifest money. But you can think about how you earn money, and you will figure out ways to earn more. And you can think about how you spend money, and you can think about ways to spend less, and therefore do those two things, and then all of a sudden you have more money. Then you're calling me up and saying, Jack, you're such a jerk because of you. I cut my spending. I got on a budget. I went out and started a business, or I got an extra job, or I got promoted, or whatever, and now I have all this stupid money I don't know what to do with. And then I'm happy when I hear those phone calls. All right? So let's talk about my rules for becoming financially resilient. Number one, and this is one that most people will never do, even though you've probably heard me say it before, increase your economic IQ daily for at least a year. I'm a subscriber to Investopedia's Term of the Day. There's a link in the show notes where you can find it. The page is kind of wonky. It's basically all their email newsletters, and you check the boxes on the one you want and then you fill out a little subscription form, and then they send you you know, whatever you've subscribed to. Uh, the only one I'm subscribed to with them is the term of the day. Generally, I don't read it anymore. Um, generally, I, what is you know, a, a put option? I, I know what a put option is. But if I see anything that I'm not 100% that I would teach it without kind of refreshing myself on I at least read the summary of it. And I've been doing that for a very long time. And I've been... Teaching myself financial terms since I was in my early 20s. When I was dead broke working in a warehouse packing boxes, I was learning a higher financial IQ because I understood this at its core even back then. And that's what I'm asking you to do. If nothing else, subscribe to that thing and just start learning. The reason is because you become more financially astute. Even if you don't, you know, you learn about puts and calls and options trading. Even if you never ever trade options, and it's a risky business trading options, by the way. It doesn't matter that you're not going to do it. Understanding it then gives you a broader financial understanding of everything around you. I would put it to you this way. I never understood when I was in high school why they wanted me to take Spanish, for instance, as a prerequisite to go to college. It was years later that somebody said something, and I went, you know what, that's true. So the reason they want you to take a foreign language is because when you actually study a foreign language, you truly understand your own language better than you could any other way. I went, yeah, you know what? All that crap they made me learn in English class actually made sense when I thought about it in that context. And that's how increasing your financial IQ is, is that now you have this broader understanding of economics, money, monetary creation, um, and you're less susceptible to bullshit. It's like knowing the basics of, of being a mechanic without actually doing the mechanical work, but when you take your car down to the shop and they start giving you a bunch of bullshit about what, why you need to spend 1200 bucks to fix a car that's barely worth 1200 bucks, you say, no, it only needs these two things. Go do that. Or if you hire people to do programming work, and you can't program, or at least not at a really high level, but you know enough about programming to know what's possible and different ways that it can be done, that you can't be bullshitted that something's going to take four weeks when you know it can be done in a week. That's what I'm talking about with economic IQ. The next is, if you believe education is an investment, you need to treat it like one. One of the, again, Debt is one of the biggest wealth killers there is in America today, and the chief form of debt that is destroying people's lives is through loans. It is a debt that can never be gotten rid of. And, and my view is you don't, and this is one of my other things we'll talk about in a minute, you don't invest in shit unless you understand it. Well, if you go out and you take out $30,000, 40000 $60,000 or more in loans against an education without figuring out what does this education mean to me from an economic standpoint, you're not investing, you're pissing away money you do not have. I have a very good friend and his wife decided to go back to school. They evaluated several careers and they ended up with a very short list of ones at her age for the cost and the time investment that made sense to actually do, and she's pursuing one of those now. And once she's and she's going through some tough shit right now, because it's a medical field and it's like an internship. But the day that's ended, she's a hundred thousand dollar plus in income. No matter where she goes or what she does. That was a decision made on economics because if we're going to do this and consider this an investment in our future, we need to treat it like an investment. If you came to me and I said, I have this business I want you to invest in, and assuming you had $50,000, I said, I just need you to give me the $50,000 and, you know, eventually you'll get the money back. Don't you think you'd ask me how that's going to happen? Wouldn't you want to see the financials of what I'm doing? Wouldn't you want to know my past track record of successes and failures, my plans to mitigate potential failures, the way that I'm going to hedge against... Wouldn't you want to know all that? Well, it's even worse when people do it with college because generally they don't even pursue learning more about the profession and whether they're going to like doing it. I have a friend whose ex-wife went through all the hell to get a degree in architecture. It's not easy only to find out she hated architecture, and now she designs closets. That's a real story. You couldn't make that up. Come on. Now, don't you think it would have been good to take some path toward an architectural education outside of school first? Like to actually maybe go talk to an architectural firm, explain that I'm interested in pursuing an education in this, I'd like some exposure to it. Maybe even if they wouldn't let you work as a free intern and slept copy or something like that, because it's hard to do anymore thanks to the government. At least can I interview, you know, like four of your top architects about their, you know, what they do, what their days like, and stuff like that. You know, most companies they love stuff like that. You know, and then you've got this inside connection to somebody, and you might realize like this sucks. I don't want to do this. Don't you think that's a good idea before you're eighty grand in debt? Any investment that you make, you should have an understanding of what's on the other side of it. And if you believe your education is an investment, you better get that understanding. Next, save money. I know that seems so fundamental, but so many people don't save any money. That's why we had a discussion yesterday about how 70 years later, we still have the same headline every day. Millions of Americans are one paycheck from poverty. Why? Because Americans don't save enough money. I want, to be, I want to do something for the millennials right now. The millennials, specifically the mid- to late-term millennials, guys that are in like late-20s to mid-30s, which is how old the oldest millennials are now, by the way. They are saving money more than any previous generation at their age. And I think it's because they've seen enough to realize it's important especially the ones that are finding decent jobs, good-paying jobs, and good careers. They've actually been called by some people the Ben Franklin generation because they're more concerned with saving cash than investing in 401ks. Good for them. Be like them. And the way you save money is you determine what you can save by coming up with a budget and then do a little more. Whatever you think you can do, you can do a little more, so try to do a little more. It, it, it's it's the old thing where the coach puts out a, a hurdle for a guy to jump over, and he knows that hurdle's too high, but it's right about the edge of what the kid's capable of. And he runs, he tries to jump that hurdle, and he hits it with his foot, and knocks it over, and hits the next one with his foot, and next one with his foot. Then he just drops it down an inch, and the kid goes right over it. But if you would have started there, the kid would have never got over it. That's what you have to do with saving money. You have to find that edge and push it constantly. And what will happen if you do that is all of a sudden it gets fun to save money. It becomes a hobby. Hey, I wonder how I can save an extra five bucks this week. And then you do it, and you're like, that was pretty cool. And all of a sudden, just a few years into it, if you lose your job, you're not one paycheck from poverty anymore. And let me tell you something about people that save money and have emergency funds when they lose a job. Generally, anybody loses a job, there's some real negative feeling to it. And, you know, especially if it's you were terminated. If the company didn't go broke or whatever, but they just told you we don't need you anymore for whatever reason, there's an ego blow. You know, if you have a... Look at that a romantic relationship, and you really know it should be over, but for one reason or another, you didn't end it, and then they do. Even though you know you're better off, you still hurt. It's like that. But then... Okay, now the reality hits. I don't have a job. I don't have anywhere to go tomorrow. Or if you got two weeks, you know, that type of thing. We're going to let you go two weeks from now. They give you a time frame, a wind down. You know, like, on this day, I don't have anywhere to go. I don't have anywhere to be. People that don't have any money saved up go into freak out mode. They start making even worse decisions, like using credit cards that they have, etc., because what else am I going to do? where that person should be out basically looking for any job they can get. If it's it's slepping coffee at Starbucks, fine. You can do that until you find something better. Whereas the person that has some money saved up, they might even have an initial knee-jerk negative response. They'll sit back and go, wait a minute. I got some unemployment that's going to be coming in. Because generally you will qualify for unemployment unless you've done something really bad. And that'll cover a little bit. And then with my other money, so that's the thing. If you have a ninety-day emergency fund and you have unemployment, you have like a hundred and twenty days. And then they start thinking, well, I know this person over here, and I can talk to them about a reference. And I, I got time to work on my resume now, which I kind of felt like this was coming. I should have been doing anyway. And I can reach out to these people and see what's available there. And all of a sudden, they wait, like, wait a minute. I have an opportunity. I have an opportunity to end up in a better position than I was in if I take my time and do it right, and then generally they go out to the bar and have a drink with some friends and celebrate this new opportunity. Which one do you want to be? Well, save money. Simple as it is. Just for nothing else, for that reason alone. There's a hundred other reasons. Um, You also need to, I've talked about this already, but reduce your expenses. And whenever you find a way to cut an expense of money you were spending, understand you were surviving spending that money. Let's say that you just wake up to the reality that in many states we now have competitive electric rates. You didn't know, for whatever reason. You go online and you search and you find out that you can cut your electric bill by something small, 30 bucks a month, just by changing your electric company. I know that's not possible ever. It doesn't matter. It's just an example. What you should do then is 15 of that $30, can, you can do whatever the hell you want to with it. You can spend it, you can save it, you can wipe your butt with it, you can go out and buy a taco Tuesday for your wife with it. I don't care. You do whatever you do. The other 15, half of what you figured out how to not spend gets added to whatever you're saving. It's that simple. Well, I mean, I no, you didn't need it. You've been spending it every month like clockwork for the last 10 years or whatever, and you've been surviving without it Getting half of it for your own self and the other half to go to your long term planning makes sense. Here's the exception if you're in debt, you're in debt, probably all of it should go on the debt until you're out of debt. Then you can go back and do the math and figure out how to split it up. But whenever you figure out how to spend less of something, especially that you were spending consistently, Half of the sa- half of the difference should go to savings, debt elimination, something like that, because you clearly don't need it. You've clearly been able to survive without it. You have to look at raises the same way. If you get a raise, fifty percent of it, you just start going to savings. You were okay before you had it. And the problem we go back to the mindsets that kill wealth. I have it coming to me. It's my time. Whatever. Well. Your time can be the rest of your life, or it can be very quick, right now only, and you end up dead broke in the future. It's your choice. Also, we talked about this. You create additional income. Start a business. Get a second job. Ask your employer for more hours. Get a side hustle. Jump in your car. Go out and drive for Uber. If it doesn't work out, go out and check out Rover.com and go pet sit for people drive for Amazon, deliver pizzas. I don't know what works for you. And sometimes what works for you sucks. But I'll tell you one thing about people that do things like driving for Uber, do Amazon deliveries and stuff, that time in the car where they're actually now making money, a couple things happen. They're not bored, so don't go find a way to dispose of money and to get time to think. One of the most valuable things in my life when I was in sales was all my road time didn't matter if I was on a plane, sitting in an airport, in my car, sitting on a train. That time, I was able to think about my life and figure out what I was going to do with it. I was also able to use that time to listen to things like audio books and stuff like that to learn more. Now Today, you guys have it so much better than me. There's podcasts like the survival podcast you can listen to and tons of other. There's a side hustle uh, podcast that had the guy on from that. There's so much you can learn for free. Well, if I was doing one of these side hustles, any time that I wasn't having to deal directly with a customer, I would be engaged in learning and development. Because when we stimulate the mind, we control how we think, and how we control, or how we think controls what? How we act. How we act. People that win with money act smart with money, but they start by thinking smart with money. You got to save money. So, we've already talked about saving money from a standpoint of cutting spending and, and spending less money. I'm talking about just the physical action, though. When I say save money, I mean, should I have cash in a jar somewhere hidden in the house? Yes. Should I have cash in the bank? Have just a plain old savings account? Yes. CDs, yes. Bonds, sure. Stocks, mutual funds, whatever. As long as you understand what you're doing, the answer is yes, 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 and yes. But on some level, you better be saving cash. Follow those successful millennials, Ben Franklin mindset. Save those Benjamins. Cash is king in so many situations. It really is. Become a landowner. You should have a plan. To become a holder of real estate in some way, shape, or form, and the best path for most people is a single family home. You have to pay to live anyway. Where people get in trouble is they go back to these financial mindsets that create wealth destruction and un, you know, unrealistic optimism. I'll just buy more than I can afford, I'll skate by for a while, and when I get a raise it'll be okay. And then the the poverty consciousness that drives the poor decision to buy more house than you can afford. You think the poverty conscious person would buy the cheap house. No, it's not how it works. They want a house that's at least as nice as Bob's. Bob and Sue have a beautiful house. They're our friends. We're going to have them over. Our house has to look at least as nice as theirs. No, it doesn't. If you're smart, you look for the house that the person selling it didn't buy my book on how to sell houses, and doesn't know the 1% effect. You look for the person that's 1% worse than everybody else, but everything's really easy to fix. And when you find that person, you negotiate hard, and you get that house for cheap because no one else wants to buy it. And even in the best markets, that house is out there somewhere. Someone's buying the houses that are selling for the least, someone's buying the houses that are selling for the most, and most people are buying the upper-middle cost. That's what they're buying in their range because that doesn't mean that most people are buying $800,000 houses. It means that when anybody buys a house, they have a range of what they can get approved for. And within that range, they create their own range because some people are actually smart. And when the the mortgage broker says, you qualify for up to $365,000, they go, no, I don't. (laughs) They look at the payment and go, no, I don't. And they set a budget for themselves. Let's say 180 to 220 thousand dollars is what that person says. Okay, I want to try to find the house that's maybe 175 that I can put 10 grand into and turn it into the 220 thousand dollar house. That's what I want if that's me. And I've done other shows on real estate and how to do that, but it's always doable because somebody's always selling that house. I'm not saying that some markets aren't a little more difficult and some aren't more, a little more easy, but it's always doable. And you get into being a landowner, and it changes so many things in your life. And when you buy smart, you buy the house that you can fix up, you buy the house in the right place that you know the neighborhood is heading in the right direction. When you do that, you build equity in that home. And if you decide to move, you're able to pull that equity out. And there's so much value in land ownership. It is still, to this day, the number one way that people become wealthy in the world. Not just America, in the world. Through the ownership of property. Next, I do believe everybody should put some money into gold and silver. The good news is, if you don't have a lot of money, you don't need a lot of it. Because I recommend... You know, I always say 5 to 10% of net wealth, but if you're going to do what I do, it's 5%. It's 5%. So if you're worth $10,000, right... You're talking 500 bucks, And it's really easy to do. It's something that's easy to do slowly over time. And it just puts like that one more quiver, one more arrow in your quiver of wealth creation. And it's it's an incredibly good emergency basket to dip into. And the reason is that you're reluctant to use it. It's really easy to log into to mybankaccount.com And look at that savings account and go, "Eh, I just need a little extra money and just transfer $500 to checking. I can do some extra stuff this month. And that's not always wrong, by the way. When you have everything dialed in and you decide that I'm going to go ahead and splurge on this thing, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But if it's that easy, all of a sudden you're doing it every month and that savings balance is going down instead of up. You know, if, you're, if your savings balance is going up over a 12-month period, but you've dipped into it a couple times, and we're not talking about long-term retirement, we're talking about a general savings, that's fine. That's what it's there for. But if you have a 12-month average and a downward trend in your savings, that's not good. Well, let me tell you something. When you're sitting there looking at $5,000 worth of silver coins, and you need an extra 500 bucks. It's really hard to make yourself pick that up, take it down to the shop, and sell it. You can do it. It's liquid. They'll pay you like that. You may make some money or lose some money on it, but you, you can get money out of it. That's why it's a good investment, because it's liquid. And because you don't have to sell at all. You sell a little bit, but it makes it more difficult. That's why I like leaving it as inheritance. It's more difficult for a person psychologically to spend it. It's real. It's there. It's tangible. I can touch it. And that's why it will always probably be the last place you go, which means you'll always have something to go back to. That's the way, that's why I'm such a big fan of it. Next, this is for after you've got your shit together, but I do believe that if you're not putting a little bit of money into Bitcoin and maybe some other of the better cryptocurrencies right now, you're missing an opportunity. Um, I think Bitcoin's about to hit another major bull run. And I think it may not be in six months, but the totality of this run overall, I think it will get to a new high. You can look historically to see what that means. And I think it will take some other cryptos with it. I do think a lot of the shit coins are going to be washed out, and we need that to happen. I won't say much on this because this is speculative money. But if your life is dialed in, fine-tuned, and you're good to go, and you want to pick up 50 a bucks, 100 bucks worth of crypto every once in a while, go ahead and don't be afraid to do it. But you better, and I've always said this, and I hope that I've been understood when I say this. It's not a joke. I'm serious. If you if you wouldn't take that money to Vegas and put it on the craps table, don't put it into crypto. And I have to couch that with this. I don't go to Vegas and play craps. So I'm not going to take any money to Vegas and put it on the craps table. So I don't mean literally. You know, for me it would be, would I take this money... And go to an expensive restaurant to spoil myself and know it's only going to be one day and not regret it next week. That's what, so whatever it is for you that gives the litmus test for this little block of money to be invested that way, I'm going to tell you right now, it's a solid investment. However, it is a risky investment, and you have to think about it that way. Um, next, I really think everybody should be some type of producer of food. It elevates your life for very little cost. Whether it's a big garden or a bunch of pots full of herbs, be a producer of food and, and, and learn how to use that food in your life. There is something that fresh fruit brings to your life that is, is, is just amazing. And remember, we really measure wealth in time and the quality of that time. That's very important to think about through here. And on that note, plant trees. And yes, I'm big on planting productive trees. We're working on the 10% project. I haven't pushed that much on the air yet. That's coming next week as we really try to push membership up in that. But I don't care if it's ornamental trees. Trees are one of the best investments as a property owner you can make. Just think about it this way. You're a buyer and you're looking to buy a house. And one house has... Kind of a barren yard. It's a big open yard. Nothing wrong with it. The other one has 25-year-old oak trees. Which one's more attractive to you? And I know there's some people that like yards. Okay, fine. The majority of buyers are going to gravitate to the one with the trees. They're going to be willing to pay more for it. And if they're down to two houses... They're going to pick the one with the trees. In fact, they're going to if they have the real choice, they're going to pick the neighborhood. Everybody knows that the older neighborhoods with all the big beautiful trees are just more attractive because we as human beings, whether we want to admit it in our modern day or not, we are designed to live in forests. That's we are forest creatures. We are forest and savanna creatures. that's what we're supposed to be. So the tree is an investment. I'm all for improving your property. Putting in decks is incredibly smart. Decks are one of the easiest value adds. Remodels, bathrooms, and kitchens are the place to be first in making the house more marketable. But the single best investment you can make on dollar for dollar return over a 10 year period of tree, because you can buy a tree for 30 bucks, put it in the ground, give it a little bit of water and fertilizer, and 10 years from now, you you know it's a great big tree. What's it worth? And what do you got into it? Now, if it has to be an, happens to be an apple tree or a plum tree or something like that, so much the better. So that's why I'm big on edibles because now it's, it's feeding you until you sell the property or until you leave it to an heir and it adds value to the property. And the tax assessor doesn't really have much to say about it. A lot of places, if you do a new kitchen, new bathroom, whatever, you need a permit from the department of making you sad. Now it's registered that it's a project went on, and the tax assessor sees it, and it adds you know, value, and now they tax you more. I'm sure somebody somewhere has come up with the stupid idea of a tree tax, but in most places, and be smart about where you live in the first place, they, they don't. Plant them in the backyard especially, so they don't even see them, right? But produce food, plant trees. When it comes to buying things, this goes back to this poverty consciousness. Buy the best you can afford once, whenever possible, over buying something cheap every few years. I always use a garden hose for this, but it's, it's one of the best analogies. You can buy a $50 garden hose, and I think it'll last 10 years. And the worst thing that happens is your wife drives over with the lawnmower, and you cut the end off and put a $6 part on it, and it keeps going. Or you can buy a $20 hose every two years and hate your life the entire time during that two years until it finally cracks from the cold and you have to replace it. Which one costs you less over five or ten years? And all your purchases of anything that is a lifelong or long-term item should be evaluated in total cost versus individual cost unless you need it and you can't afford anymore. That's why I say you buy the best you can afford. Right. So if you can't afford a $50 hose and you need a hose and you have to settle for the $20 piece of shit one, I get it. I remember being broke. I swear. But if you're not in that state, then you should be looking at the totality. And this is what people don't understand. It's only 30 bucks. Right. It's only 30 extra bucks or it only saves me 30 bucks. It is the consistent, nonstop self dialogue. That it's only 5 bucks, it's only $10, it's only $15 that adds up to tens of thousands of dollars over your life that could have went to your future that ends up being worth hundreds of thousands of dollars due to return that you whittled away $5 and $10 and $20 at a time. Because we don't teach people to think this way because it's not good for the people that make the big money by printing it. They want you to spend as much as you can get. One of the biggest reasons it's given by politicians when they're being honest about why to cut taxes for the middle class is because they'll spend the money. Because they'll spend the money. It doesn't make it good for them, okay? It makes it good for the economy, which means it makes it good for the people that are the actual monetary creators. Because then they have more to leverage to steal from you. You have to understand, I don't want to go too deep into this today, but you really need to understand the nature of fascist economics in the United States. And I know a lot of people just rolled your eyes because I said that word, and you think fascist means Hitler. I'm talking about fascist economics. And this is the truth about modern monetary creation and modern money mechanics in America today. All right? The Federal Reserve, a group of private banks, was empowered by the government to be able to control the creation, expansion, and contraction of the monetary supply. They literally have the, the ability to print money at will and lend it to themselves at super low interest rates on top of that. And then lend it to you at higher rates and guarantee the spread so they won't lose. And to do this, the only form of collateral they need and have is the future labor of the people. Every time the government issues a bond, it is a debt against the fact that your grandchild will work and be taxed. And it'd be bad enough if the government was the one really doing it, but the Federal Reserve gets to keep the profit on it, and they literally extend no risk. Because you are their collateral. Now, I don't like us and them thinking because when we do that we give ourselves an excuse for failure but it is important to understand that at that that macro level because when you do you realize that hey it's 100% on me to deal with this shit so next up become highly skilled at fixing your own problems now this is handyman yes but not j- this is again how you think If I become highly adept at fixing my own problems, I spend less time dealing with my problems and more time dealing with solutions. So instead of getting in a costly court battle with my neighbor, if I become highly adept at being diplomatic with my neighbors, I can solve the problem we have between us without involving the state, be a more responsible adult, and preserve that relationship so I don't end up hating where I live. That's just one example. But we can get more concrete. Yes, if you learn how to fix shit when something breaks, instead of buying a new one or calling a guy, you save that money. Our grandfathers, guys, were great at this. And if you're younger, your great-grandfathers, right? Your dad's parents, uh, your, your, your granddad's parents were good at this. But You gave my grandfather a freaking pair of pliers, a screwdriver, and a hammer, and some bailing wire, and there wasn't almost anything the guy couldn't fix. And even if he never tried before, he just looked at it, figured out what it did, and why it wasn't doing that, and then how to make it do that again. And a lot of times they actually made things better by the time it was all said and done with. I remember one time I was out, and uh, we were splitting logs in this. It was right when a thing called a mule mall came out. And it was this big, heavy-duty wedge, and it had a metal handle. And I actually broke it. So, I I mean, I'm, I'm like, hitting this log, and it really wasn't ready to split yet and all, and it it, it cracked the metal, and I was scared I was going to be in trouble. And I took it to my great-uncle and showed it to him, and I said, I I just hit the, you know, like, I was afraid I was going to be in big trouble. He goes, hey, you must have been doing a lot of work for that to happen. He took it into his shop, and he welded it, and he was very proud of the fact that if you break it again, it's not going to break where I welded it. It will have to break somewhere else because that weld is stronger than everything else there. That mentality is why those people thrived through the damn Great Depression and the World War II years and then came back after all that shit went on, after all the crap they dealt with, and built the damn interstate system. That's why, because they had that mindset. Well, mindsets aren't something anybody has a monopoly on. You choose your mindset. They weren't better than you. Just no one told them they couldn't, so they didn't know they couldn't, so they did. You've That's got to start thinking that way. And when you do, the next thing that happens is you start seeing opportunity everywhere. You start solving your own problems, saving money, managing your life, controlling. You're like, holy shit, I could do this. Holy shit, I can do that. The problem becomes figuring out the ones to do and not taking on too much. You have to see opportunity everywhere because it is everywhere. And I'm going to tell you something that people need to get through their damn heads. And I've been trying to teach people this for the last freaking 11 years on this show. And all it's done is gotten more true. There has never, I repeat, never, ever, never been a better time to be alive than right now. This is the best time it has ever been, unless somewhere in deep history when Atlantis was there or something like that. In known history, there has never been a better time to live, especially in a, in a modern country like the United States of America, than right now. there is, And I defy you to tell me when there was. And you might be able to romanticize yourself into a false narrative of history. But there's been, never been a time where it's easier to be, be healthy. It's been more affordable to be able to feed yourself. It's been easier to get information. It's been easier to educate yourself. It's been easier to start a business. It's been easier to earn an income. There's never been better than today. Opportunity literally is falling out of the sky why people bitch and say they can't get ahead. Because how many people are doing it? Are they special? Do they shit gold? Is that why they're successful? Is every successful person a trust fund baby? Come on, you know people that you went to school with and you thought, this guy seems mildly retarded and he's financially kicking your ass now. Because somewhere along the way, he picked up personal responsibility. He understood that it was up to him to make shit happen instead of let life give him shit. And he went out and made things happen. And in some ways, yes, he does shit gold. Not really metaphorically. Because there's people that seem like it's like everything this guy touches, it works. No, it doesn't. That's just what you see. For every for every good thing that that person did, they failed like a dozen or even maybe a hundred times. But they kept trying because they knew there was the right place for them and they never gave up. Pulling it back a little bit, really simple. Become a great cook. You guys know I'm passionate about cooking. Man, I just took some leftover pork last night, some carrots and celery. Uh, and some, some sweet peppers and whipped up a little stir fry sauce, threw that in a pan, made that for Dorothy and I. She couldn't stop talking about how good it was. It was freaking leftovers. Well, what would it have cost us if we're like, I don't leak. We didn't take anything out and uh, let's go out and eat. We're not going to McDonald's guys when we go out, right? We go out. We're into it for a hundred bucks because we can be because we live this way and because we don't do it all the time. But that's 100 bucks we didn't spend on leftovers. It would have went to waste if I didn't do something with them. By the way, most of the vegetables came from outside. They were free. I grow them. So I, I can afford to go have a $200 dinner, but I will prefer to eat what I can cook out of my own backyard most of the time because it's amazing. Become a great cook. It is a life skill, and it is it is a sin, in my opinion, that we send our children to government schools for 13 flipping years at an average cost of $14,000 nationwide per student per year, and they come out of that school and they can't make freaking macaroni and cheese. It is a damn sin. It is disgraceful. It's one of the reasons I think government school is an abject failure. You send me a kid at 19 that's been through freaking 13 years of your shit that we have invested over $100,000 into their education... It's close to $200,000. They don't know what a ratchet is. They can't work a screwdriver. They can't make macaroni and cheese. They can't even boil a damn egg. And if you ask them to solve a simple arithmetic problem, it takes them 109 steps. Bullshit. So if you have kids, you need to teach them how to cook. If you didn't learn how to cook, get your ass on YouTube. There's so much out there. Check out... Guga Foods, great guy. Suvi Everything, same same guy, different channel, right? Brothers Green Eats. I mean, there's so many great Scott Ray projects. These are all you guys I've, I've you know kind of checked out cooking. Go learn how to cook. It'll save you money and it makes your life better because we measure wealth and time. And the quality, see, that's what's left out of the Robert Kiyosaki quote. The quality of the time. The quality of the time. You know? The guy sitting in a prison cell has as much time as you do. Some ways he has more, but what's the quality of it? What's the quality of it? So you're going to have the time. What are you going to be doing with it? How much are you going to enjoy it? What are you going to be making of it? Next, and this kind of goes back to education as an investment, but in any investments, only invest in what you understand and what makes sense. When you start looking at investments, if this comes in, it's like winning the lottery. You're going to lose your money. You're going to lose your money, and even if you win, you're going to piss your money away. You have to be, on some levels, greedy with your money. Now, look, I'm one of these people that I teach this, and people have a real problem with it. Money's like sand. If you hold on to it very, very tightly, you actually will never have very much of it. Because if you pick up sand and try to hold it in your hand very, very tightly... What happens? The majority of the sand comes out between your fingers. So I don't mean greedy in the conventional sense, because I teach you to hold on to your money like sand, which means you hold on to it loosely, but you hold on to it. It's your hand, and you're controlling where it goes. When I say greedy when it comes to investment, what I'm saying is, I have now allocated this money to work for me. It is now my slave. Well, I'm going to be greedy about what job I assign it to do, and I better understand that job that it's going to be doing, and I better understand the return that I'm going to get from that monetary slave working for me. That dollar is now my monetary slave. I expect it to produce me a dime every year, and I damn well need to know where that dime comes from, how that dime gets there, and by the way, my slave's kid, that dime, is another slave. It's going back in there, but I better understand why and how. When people start, like, investing with their brother-in-law in in something he's going to run, it never works out. I should say it seldom works out. But I'll tell you how it works out. When the guy really knows his brother-in-law and his brother-in-law really knows his shit and they understand their roles and they come to an agreement in advance and it turns into a really big company, and the guy that was primarily just an investor ends up well-to-do because of it, it's rare, but it's because it was all understood. You invest in something, you understand it, or you don't invest in it. And You better understand it, and it better make sense. Right. Also, get your ass out of the way of telegraph punches, which means, yes, you time the market. There will come a time. I don't know when yet, but we will look at all the leading economic indicators. And it will probably be John Pugliano and myself who will scream this time, just like I did back in 08. Get out, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. And when we say it, do it. And it won't be because we're geniuses. It's not because I'm spear godamus it's because there are times when the only place for the market to go is down. There are those times. And there are times when you know the storm is coming, you go way back in the harbor and you tie your boat up and everybody that's out there gets their ass beat and you don't. And then you're the only boat on the water like Forrest Gump and all of a sudden you're catching all the shrimp. I don't know how to make it any easier and more clear to understand that. Because if you listened to me in '08. When I screamed, and I literally said, get out, get out, get out, get out. You had months to buy in at significantly depressed market prices. I am not a day trader. I do not mean that. But if your financial advisor tells you to stay the course, when when it's turned the corner to the point where even the people on the major news networks are saying, our recession is coming, yeah, we think so then you need a new financial advisor. You need to take things in your own hands, or at least you need to disable them. I don't want to talk anymore. I need you to do this for me. Put your money in a cash-cash equivalence and wait. In those situations, I'll tell you what happens. Either the market does correct, and it's a big drop, or it kind of goes sideways and wiggles. and uh, It never takes off. It's never like everybody thinks it's going to be a recession, and next thing you know... It's a 55% gain. That's not how it works. You know, would you lose that on a two-point gain? To be conservative, that's part of being conservative. All right? Um, Next, I said this before, but I'm going to keep saying it. I'll be saying it until the day I die. Pay off all your debt as soon as possible. Debt is cancer. I won't beat the whole thing up again. But if I don't close with that today... I have not done you a, a, a good enough service. There is nothing that will eat away at your financial survival like debt. Nothing. Last, become adept at using Microsoft, Excel, or some spreadsheet program. I don't care if it's Google or uh, the Pages version thereof on a Mac. I don't care what it is. But Excel is probably the the most well-known. It has the most tutorials. I found a few weeks ago, I put it out, I have it in the show notes today, the best Microsoft Excel tutorial that I have ever seen, starting from the very basics to very advanced. I'm learning things from that tutorial. If I'm learning things about Excel, after damn near 30 years of using it, I'm telling you it's good. It's really, really that good. This is another skill. I think it is a sin. Again, 13 years in government schools, K through 12, kid comes out and can use Excel a little tiny bit for some science project to make a graph, but can't run the numbers on his student loan debt versus the career projection forward, and then is told to go to college. How are you going to tell that kid to go to college? You didn't teach him how to evaluate college, and you're going to tell him to go to college. Excel is one of the greatest tools of the modern times. Remember I said earlier, there has never been a better time to be alive than right now, Excel, as boring as it seems, is one of the technologies that makes that the case. Because you have the ability with Excel, if you learn what you're doing and get good numbers to put into it, to literally see the future exactly how it's going to be. There's always some margin of error. But there are certain things that you can go in as constants and solid estimates and you can actually go, this thing is going to lose me money. This thing is going to make me money. And you can know that, not think that. Because everybody's selling you something, if there's an ability to make you think it's going to be profitable for you, they're going to use it in their sales pitch. Because it's one of the only reasons people buy anything. We, we, we really buy everything we buy for education and entertainment. That's really the secret to life, by the way. Everything about life. we either educating ourselves or entertaining ourselves. But... On top of that, we either gain a profit from something or we wouldn't buy it, right? Or we gain enough entertainment that it's worth a loss. This is how we make decisions. And people that sell and market for a living are very well aware of this. And they know if they can get you to believe that economically you will be ahead by doing it five years down the road, one year down the road, whatever, that you'll probably do it. Especially if you want to, anyway. Excel cuts through the bullshit and tells you whether that's true or not. And never believe anybody else's spreadsheet. Build your own. That's why I don't give away templates. All right, final thoughts. In the end, the game is rigged, it's a big club, and you're not in it. That's true. And that's one of the the truisms that create those mental barriers that cause financial failure in so many people like poverty consciousness. The important thing to understand about that statement is even though it's absolutely true, you can still win the game. You just don't play their game. You play your own game. They created this system to enrich themselves. And it's a lot like The Matrix. The rules are there for everyone and it is up to us to figure out how to leverage those rules bend those rules and even at times rape those freaking rules to enrich ourselves and one of the things that they've done to try to mitigate that is they if you just had a little negative feeling like a little cold on your neck or something I said to enrich yourself if you thought anything negative when I said that that's your programming that's the control they exercise on you. That's greedy. Why is it greedy to enrich yourself? See, I didn't say at somebody else's expense. This is where we can learn something, even though I'm not a religious person, from, from religious texts and the concept of a covetousness being a sin. The concept of like, not covering your neighbor's house or his wife or his car or whatever. If John has a nice car, there is zero wrong with going, Man... John has a beautiful car. I'd love a car like that someday. Do you know why? Because the market provides as many of those cars as people can earn the ability to purchase. John does not have to lose his car for you to have one. If you meet John's wife and she's an amazing, beautiful woman on so many different levels, and you think, I want to meet a woman like John has, there's nothing wrong with that. Wanting John's wife at John's expense, that's covetousness. And what they have taught you is that a desire to have more for yourself is the sin of covetousness. That's why when I say to enrich yourself, there's that little, and I know a lot of you, you're even past this, and still every time I say it, every time I say it, there's this little, uh, there's like, ah. Uh. It's like those of you who have gotten over the fact that occasionally I use the word retarded, but yet you still go, ah. Uh. If you feel that way when I say to enrich yourself, You need to get rid of that. That's the residual cancer that the chemo hasn't gotten rid of yet. What's wrong with enriching yourself? What's wrong with, if you enrich yourself, are your children not better off? Is your spouse not better off? If you're a good person, is your community not better off? Are not multitudes of people better off? Is not the, the waitress that you tip really well because you can better off for you having gone to that restaurant that day? When you actually can afford to buy a car like John has, is the guy that built the car not better off because there's more people buying cars like that? Is the guy that sold it not better off because he earned a commission on it? How many people are better off because you've done well? There is nothing wrong with enriching yourself as long as you're not doing it at the expense of others. And the way they've kept this us-in-them mentality, with the real them being so far away, you can't even see them, you don't even know their names. Okay? And but, but, but Bill down the street is a them because Bill just is living a little bit better than you is to convince us the only way Bill got there was by taking it from somebody no we live in a society where there's enough of a remnant of capitalism that in the end today still those that do the best do something of value for someone else and that's really what it all comes down to You have a whole life, whatever it is for you. Some of us die entirely too young. Some people live, damn, there seems like forever. But whatever it is, you have your whole life to determine whether you're going to be a person of value or whether you're not. That choice is yours. Financial independence isn't everything, but it's a hell of a thing. Again, you don't have to be rich to be happy. I do believe you have to be wealthy to truly be happy in life. Many wealthy people have very little money, but they're incredibly wealthy. They live the way they want to live. They do the things they want to do. They impact lives the way they want to impact them, and they have the freedom to do it. I'm just going to tell you it's a lot easier with money than it is without it. I promise you, because, I've been, again, I, I do remember being a broke kid. I do remember working till my fingers literally bled, packing boxes for $6 an hour but the reason I did it wasn't because I thought it was all I could do I knew it was temporary I knew it was something I could do for the moment to make sure I kept a roof over my head while I figured out what I wanted to do with my life if I can go from packing boxes for $6 an hour to a six figure income in four years which is what I did with one friend in the entire state of Texas that I shared an apartment with and zero connections when I walked in the door. There isn't a single person listening to this that if that's the path you want, you can't take it. But the key with your path is always remember. Always remember, even though I don't like everything about the guy. Robert Kiyosaki's words, Rich is measured in money and wealth is measured in time. I want to all add to that and the quality of that time and what you're able to do with it on your own terms. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did and you want to help support us, remember you can always become a member by going to the survivalpodcast.com, clicking on members to learn more, and I'm about financial returns. So, you become a member, you use the discounts, you get more than your money back, it's profitable. I said that anybody that sells to you that thinks they can make that case will, I also said Excel never lies. Take the Excel tutorial, Go through the discounts, figure out the ones you're likely to use, and stick it in. And I'm going to tell you, unless you don't buy anything, Excel's going to tell you that I'm telling you the truth. Don't trust me. Trust Excel. Consider becoming a member. And also look at it as a value-for-value value exchange. If you think a show's worth $0.20 cents an episode, hey, I'm selling it for $0.18.3 cents an episode on a voluntary basis is the other way to look at it. So consider becoming a member. Uh, next up, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. So you decide you're going to buy something anyway. Just go to tspaz.com first, check out the deals of the day at Amazon, whatever. If you're going to buy it, especially if you're going to buy it through Amazon, you start there, you help us no matter what you buy. And then I have items of the day that I review for you, and everything there I've spent my own money on. I'd recommend it only because I would buy it myself or I don't do it. Today, uh, I decided, based on our discussion about nutrition and health yesterday, to bring this book around again. It's called Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day. Uh, Now, most of you all know me. I try to keep my carbohydrates down, etc. But what I, I revealed yesterday with that article, and it has me thinking more and more about the reality behind it, that they've done studies where people that eat processed foods and pretty much eat the same diet as people that eat not processed foods, the not processed food people lose weight or maintain a decent weight, and the processed food people eventually just get fat. And by the way, in our discussion with money today, being fat, overweight, out of shape, and in poor health is expensive. It's not good. Um, Well, one of the places where we've gone completely off the rails with processed food is bread. There's probably nothing more highly processed on the store shelves than, than bread. But it doesn't have to be. It can be an easy thing to make. This book tells you how to do a little bit of work every weekend and make a loaf of bread every day all week long for pennies. So you save money on bread of all things, as cheap as bread is, and you you, you really save money because you're going to be more healthy, and it's a better quality product, and you're going to enjoy it more, and it fits in with becoming a great cook. So I thought it was a good one for today. Again, it's called The New Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day. Uh, it's a really great book. I don't make a lot of bread, like I said, but the method works. I bought it just because I wanted to recommend it. I actually saw it in one of my sales reports. As an affiliate, I can see not who bought what, but what got bought. And I was like, I should check that out. And when I did, I was like, I'll buy the Kindle Edition. And uh, I was really impressed with it. And, I mean, a lot of people have bought it. I've heard from a lot of people about it. Everybody's happy with it. Check it out. If you want to eat high-quality bread instead of the crap from the store and up your cooking game, the artisan bread in five minutes a book day. Check it out. With that, let's go ahead and talk about our song of the day today. Our song of the day today is by Zach Brown Band, and it's called Highway 20 Ride. And it's a song that what it's actually about is very upfront, hit you over the head in the face. But I think a lot of people m- might hear it and not even realize it because they don't really listen to it. And with country music having such a, a a bent toward the romantic and this song actually being, in a way, a love song, people might lose understanding of what it's about. This song was written by the writer, uh, and he's a guy that's written a lot of songs for... Uh, zach brown bad uh and i might be saying his name wrong but it's wyatt Durrett, i think is how you say his name and here's what he said about this song highway 20 ride is a song i started writing when i was probably a year into making the drive from atlanta to augusta georgia to see my son i'd gone through a divorce my wife moved back to where she was from in south carolina and the halfway point was augusta I was bartending and took every other weekend off to spend time with him. It was a very painful time in my life, not having enough time together and having uh, to bring him back. I worried about how he would perceive me as a father. Am I doing the right thing? I was going through all the things everybody goes through in that situation. That song started on an Interstate 20 in Georgia. I, I bought what I, had, what I had started to Zach. He was there as a friend. He went through it with me. Uh, with with me on my end he is also a son of the same situation in divorce with his father he saw the other side so it wasn't hard for him to help me write it he sings it with a lot of passion he was there as a child and he was there when i was going through it i now refer to highway 20 ride as a love song to my kid to let him know i'll always be there no matter how far we travel i try to give him love and respect and let him know he's loved no matter what his mother and I are both there because we care about him. He didn't do anything to deserve it. Through love, communication, and respect for each other, it can be okay. And when you think about it and then you listen to this song, it's, it's, it's heart-wrenching. And I think most of us that are parents have been through some level of it. If we even haven't been through a divorce, I remember traveling and feeling like when I got home, my son grew. Because I'd be gone for two weeks at a time sometimes. And... So many people in this country have gone through divorces, and this is such a common thing. And I have a plea for you people out there that are either divorced or will be divorced that have kids. Never use your child as a weapon against your spouse. I think it is one of the most despicable things that can be done, and I see it happen all the time. That kid, if you love them as much as you claim, well, unless they don't want it, they need to have as much access to both of y'all as possible, and you should do whatever you can to make it possible. And the one line in this song that I think really drives that point home and and is something that we should all think about as we become parents, again, whether we stay together or not, he says, and part of you might hate me, but son, please don't mistake me for a man that didn't care at all. There are situations we end up in that are hard and difficult and do whatever we can. Let me bring it back to the subject today. I really agree with Dave Ramsey when he says couples that win with money tend to win at life. That doesn't mean rich. That means they learn how to control money. When you learn how to control money, you learn how to control your life. And I, I can't give you the statistics to prove this, though I'm sure they might be available I really believe that the number one thing that destroys marriages is financial stress. Even when it results in infidelity, it's often driven by financial stress. And the financial stress drives a wedge, creates distance. Learn to live with money, or learn to win with money, learn to win with life. And then hopefully, you won't be one of the people that this song means, you know, a lot more to. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. I ride
0: east every other Friday But if I had it my way A day would not be wasted on this drive And I want so bad to hold you of there's things I haven't told you Your mom and me couldn't get along So I drive And I think about my life And wonder why That I slowly die inside Every time I turn that truck around Right at the Georgia line and I count the days and the miles back home to you On that highway, it's when it rides Day might come, you realize That if you see through my eyes There was no other way to work it out and a part of you might hate me But some please don't mistake me For the man that didn't care at all And I drive And I think about my life And wonder why That I slowly die inside Every time I turn that truck around Right at the Georgia line, and I count the days and the miles back home to you on that Highway 20 ride. Dry, and the years go flying by I hope you smile If I ever cross your mind It was a pleasure of my life And I cherished every time And my whole world It begins and ends with you On that highway